Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Today we will be talking to Dania Glabau, a medical anthropologist and the founder of Implosion Labs. She will be talking to us about her research within the food allergy sector and what it means to be a patient and how it influences the use and development of medical technologies. Lastly, we will be talking about what it's like to work in the medical sector as an applied anthropologist. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Dania. Thank you so much for having you with us this morning on our podcast show. This Thank is... you so much. <laughs> so, according with your own definition, what would be something around anthropology that you would say and uh, medical technology? So, I think there are two fields that have a lot to learn from each other at this point in time. So, anthropology, sort of broadly conceived, is the study of human culture. And so that might be particular cultures or communities or societies. Anthropology also puts a big emphasis on studying the things that are kind of common across cultures, across communities, across societies. I think medical technology at this point is a field that includes everything from digital technologies, from self-trackers to electronic record systems, um, all the way up, I think, through physical technologies to devices to new drug delivery systems. So I think there's a really wide array of what kind of fits into that category of medical technology for me. And I think where medicine, medical technology, and anthropology meet is around this very fundamental question of what it means to be human and what it means to live in a human body in a way that lets you participate in culture and society. So I think there's increasingly attention uh, from anthropologists on how the body, how physical mm -hmm. systems, how biology kind of influence cultural life. And I think whenever you're developing a new technology that's going to intervene on the body, that's going to intervene mm -hmm. on people's well-being, you should also be thinking about the cultural and social context mm. in which that's taking place. So I think there's really a lot that the fields can learn from yeah. each other. Tell a bit to our listeners about your personal background with this kind of two intersecting um, fields. Yeah, so my way into anthropology took a couple twists and turns. Uh, so I actually started out as a biology major as an undergrad at Cornell University, and I thought I was going to be a plant biologist, a bench scientist. It turned out I wasn't really ready for that. Um, and I ended up drifting more towards the social sciences. So first into linguistics and ultimately into science and technology studies where I found my identity as an anthropologist in graduate school. Um, so I took a few twists and turns and from the beginning was always interested in science and technology, especially how they affect social life mm. uh, and how they're sort of positioned or shaped by social traditions and social biases. So for me, uh, anthropology and then this sort of sub area of anthropology called science studies or science and technology studies really lets me use the tools from anthropology, the ethnography, the qualitative research, mm -hmm. the curiosity in human societies and individual motivations, but also have some additional tools for understanding how all those things play into science and technology. Mm -hmm. My path with medical technology kind of weaved in and out of that academic path towards anthropology. 
So I did start as a biology major, went more into the social sciences. But as I was writing up my dissertation, I actually had the opportunity to work with a biotechnology startup in New York City that I kind of met through the grapevine of, mm-hmm. of some research that I had done. So I joined their team and helped build the company uh, from the early stages. We actually ended up spinning out a new company using the core technology in a slightly different way. So that was a a kind of different way into uh, working around medicine and medical technology that was much more hands-on, much more sort of from the inside of the company perspective. So you seem to have had like quite a, an intense experience on both sides of the fence, right? In, inside academia, but also um, applying it on the field. So I, I was wondering if you can speak a bit to that type of relationship that people build with medical technologies and, and also address fear surrounding it. Yeah, I mean, I think the question of fear and, and then I think the other side, which is a question of hope, is mm. a really interesting thing to dig into around medical technologies. So in my dissertation research, I studied food allergy activism in the United States. And one of the really uh, big things that people talk a lot about in the food allergy world and, and that really brings people together in some cases um, is the epinephrine auto-injector. Mm. So it goes by mm. brand names like the EpiPen mm-hmm. or the OpiQ. And this is a device that provides uh, an immediate uh, dose of a medication that in an allergy emergency would stop and start to reverse the reaction. So mm-hmm. so it can be literally life-saving for someone with a severe allergy who's caught unawares, um, you know, happens to eat a cookie with a nut in it, for mm-hmm. example. They're allergic to nuts. So this is a very ordinary device, right? There are millions of these sold each year. They're sold by many companies. There's many different designs. You know, from a marketing perspective, rates of food allergies are rising. So it's a market that's growing. But It's also something that people can become very attached to on a really personal and emotional level, Mm -hmm. right? Because it has these life-saving properties for people with severe allergies. It ends up in my, in my research, I describe it as a kind of becoming a a sort of focal point for hopes and fears around food allergies more Mm -hmm. generally, right? So it might be a focal point for fears of a mother of a child with food allergies, right? Where they're very afraid that the child's going to go to school and eat something they're allergic to and become sick at Mm. school. Um, And so the EpiPen uh, in in those situations can become kind of a symbol of that fear, a symbol of that anticipation, Mm. even while it's a medical device. Uh, and it's a tool for for the student who might be using it, right? So it has these multiple meanings and multiple uses. It also is a symbol of hope in some ways. And in that way has motivated a lot of activist uh, organizing in the food allergy world. And the way that it organizes hope is that it might be, on the one hand, a reminder that you're vulnerable to a food allergy reaction, right? If you're carrying this thing around, you see mm. in your purse, you're always being reminded that you're allergic and that you can have a reaction at any time. But the hope side of it is that a lot of people also feel like it gives them control and power mm. over their destiny, mm. control and power over their health. Mm. Um, and and some people really manage to embrace that sense of it and manage to see it as something very empowering. Um, so again, you have these sort of two meanings there. And that can really affect, you know, whether one person is more uh, focused or motivated by the hope side or the fear side might affect whether they're always carrying the EpiPen with them. Mm -hmm. It might affect whether they are willing to use it in an emergency. 
And so these are starting to get into some of those questions that people in the medical world would think of as questions of compliance mm. or adherence to treatment, right? Mm. Thinking in a very binary way, as you say, right, is the patient using their medical device when they need to? Yes or no, right? That is often the kind of question that doctors and uh, device makers are asking. But in order to understand why someone's using that device. You need to understand what kind of emotional attachment do they have to it? Um, how does it fit into their daily routines as well? Are they someone who carries a purse or a bag and has a space to carry a medical device with them, right? All these things kind of work into a question that is, again, posed as a very binary problem. Are they compliant? Yes or no. Are they adherent? Yes or no. Um, so again, I think there's so much potential for bringing together the social side, uh, including some of these sort of emotional aspects to better inform the kinds of questions that businesses are asking about why people are using a product, how they're using a product, um, and how that product can be improved to meet some of those needs. Um, that, that sounds super fascinating. So mm -hmm. I was wondering, because you were talking a lot about this um, hopes and fears and how it's linked to per the, each person's perception of their own uh, condition, uh, how is sociality around that person influenced by the visibility and the usage of that, um, of that object? And um, how do, let's say, or if companies mitigate that in a way or another? Yeah, so uh, again, you know, thinking with this example of epinephrine auto-injectors, One of the really fascinating things for me in my research is that, so it was it was a, a target or a, a sort of focal point of some of these individual hopes and fears, but there was also a movement that grew up around it, a, a movement of political activism that grew up around it. Um, so in the United States, um, there are now laws in each state, in each of the 50 states, addressing what is called stock epinephrine. So this is a policy that requires a rewriting of, of each state's laws that allows these devices to be prescribed to an organization rather than to an individual. So in the U.S., if uh, a doctor writes a prescription, typically it has to be to a single individual, and only that individual is used, allowed to consume that medication. So these laws allow for epinephrine auto-injectors to then be placed in uh, facilities like schools or like churches or like restaurants and available for use by anyone who has an emergency in that situation. Um, so in that way, it's sort of like an arterial defibrillator, right, uh, or, or something like that. So not only were these devices a focal point of individual emotions, they became this kind of central organizing reason for people to come together to talk about their experiences with food allergies, uh, to form alliances with other parents or other patients, with other organizations, uh, to go to their state legislatures and get involved in the legislative process to Uh, help write bills, to connect lawmakers, to build public support for these bills. So you see this huge sort of new form of sociality forming around this device. This is kind of similar to what anthropologist Paul Rabinow has called biosociality, mm -hmm. right? This idea that uh, in a world where medicine is always on our minds and medical technologies are always embedded in our everyday lives, that we're starting to think about ourselves as patients in our everyday life. And we're starting to connect around those patient identities um, that might be connecting to the object itself. And, and it also often means connecting to other people who have a shared experience with a medical technology. What does it mean for the development of the object itself um, and the directions that companies are taking in developing these kind of objects? Um, because I've 
I've I've read a lot around this kind of like um, as people are patients, as you said, every day. That means that the object, to a certain extent, becomes an extension of of um, ourselves, right? And becomes embedded to a certain extent in our identity, and up to the point that it could be even becomes a part of our biology, biological identity. So um, I was wondering if you can speak a bit to that. Yeah. So this is a great question. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that that companies can be doing, that entrepreneurs can be doing, that researchers in our academic labs can be doing. You know, I, again, I think there's many points of intervention and and collaboration between uh, anthropologists and uh, folks in the medical world here. You know, one thing that uh, increasingly patient nonprofit organizations are doing is establishing patient advisory boards where uh, they actually have kind of expert patients, people who are well-versed in the challenges of a condition, maybe leaders in a patient community, um, kind of on call to reach out to if there's uh, some new innovation, some new problem, uh, some new idea. Uh, that the company or the designer uh, wants to get patient input on. Um, And so, you know, in the past, we've seen uh, patients kind of speaking on behalf of pharmaceutical companies and more marketing terms, but this is much more on the sort of research and development Mm -hmm. side. Um, And I think that's a really interesting innovation and and something that, um, you know, again, I've sort of seen spreading in uh, patient advocacy groups, and it's, it's starting to uh, crop up uh, in the private sector as well. And, and that was actually something that I worked on uh, when I was working in biotech, uh, was was creating some of these patient communities that companies could reach out to. Mm-hmm. It's very analogous to a scientific advisory board, except it's not just about the science. As every medical technology company knows, it's also about the users. It's also about the patients. Um, I think another thing to keep in mind here is that Again, as medical devices become more and more embedded in our daily lives, I think that means that there's more and more responsibilities of the companies making and producing them to be doing research on the patient perspective. And and so certainly we see in the U.S. at least the growth of design research, of things like design sprints, of uh, UX and UI design. Um, but I think there's often room to go a little bit uh, deeper and a little bit broader mm. and really getting into the patient perspective through ethnographic methods, through uh, what some people call deep hanging out, to really get into the world of what it's like to have a particular condition, uh, what it's like to uh, to carry around that device every day, and, and kind of seeing it from that perspective and, and how you might optimize for, for real life experience. I, I think that's, a, that's an awesome perspective, especially in this particular sector, because I've worked a lot in consumer goods, and in consumer goods, as a, as a designer or as a, as a person that, that works in that de- product development team, you're also to a certain extent a user um, and the mm-hmm. usage of that product is more natural to you. When it, whereas when it comes to medical devices, if you're not experiencing that condition, uh, it's quite difficult to see, it, see that perspective quite well unless you, you do this kind of acts of um, ethnographic hanging out, connecting to, to the users. I wonder, a consistent process like that inside a company, how would influence, um, one, their responsibility on um, the effects of that, of, of that product on the condition um, of the users, and also their sense of ethics in, in developing it? And I was wondering if you could, if you have some examples or if you can speak a bit to that sense of awareness, or maybe that sense of awareness can even take them into different directions. Yeah, I mean, I, 
at first, I, I kind of want to riff on something that occurred to me in, in the first part of your comment, which is, you know, this this kind of slipperiness that I think you and I are both talking about uh, between talking about people as patients versus talking about them as users, right? Mm. I think in healthcare, people are often thought of as patients um, and not so much as users. And of course, patient is a word that that is related to passion, that is related to kind of passive suffering, right? Mm. And I think one of the, the really useful things to borrow from a more design research paradigm for anthropology and for anthropology applied to medicine is this user perspective. Um, is thinking about individuals as active users, people with needs, people with desires, but also people with agency uh, who might find unintended uses, tool or technology or device, and who might do those uses uh, despite the, the sort of best intentions of the people who created it. So I think remembering that patients have that agency and, and are going to exercise it whether you want them to or not, and, and to know what that's going to look like in the R&D process is really, really important. What does that do uh, with their sense of responsibility? Um, I remember I used to work once for a German company, and in the R&D department, they they assume that people have no agency because the, in that way they said that is the best way for them to be responsible um, over the prob of solving the problem that they're suffering from. They were telling me, the scientists, that people would, if you give them the freedom to act with a specific device, and this was not medical, it was cosmetic, If you give them the freedom to use it in any way they deem necessary, they might provoke harm to themselves, and you are responsible as a scientist or as a developer to, uh, to kind of prevent that. So I was wondering if you can kind of speak a bit to that. Yeah, yeah. So I think you brought up a few different dimensions. So I think the question of responsibility is kind of an umbrella question here. But I also hear some issues related to ethics, to mm -hmm. the sort of ethical obligation of a company or a designer towards the users or user patients, as well as potential liability questions, right? Um, how much can you acknowledge that people are going to kind of color outside the lines and still be within side the kind of legal requirements that you need to, to, to follow as a company and especially as a medical device or drug company. Um, I think these are really thorny issues. I actually see some of these questions of responsibility really being worked out um, in in healthcare systems, so in hospital systems or in clinic networks. So here in the U.S., uh, especially in the sort of New York City tri-state area, you uh, we increasingly have these networks of multiple hospitals, and then they'll have multiple outpatient clinics, and maybe they'll have some specialist outpatient clinics. Then these big networks, and one of the questions that these organizations are starting to ask is, how do we most efficiently get people to come back for their follow-ups with a specialist? How do we educate and encourage people to go to an outpatient clinic rather than going to the emergency room when they have the flu, right? So now they have all this data, they have all these sites, they understand where people are going, but they still can't quite figure out why. And I think the, the question of responsibility comes in a little bit because you can know what's happening Um, and you can know what might lead to better outcomes for people, right? It, you're going to have a better outcome if you go to an outpatient clinic for a cold or a flu than if you go to the ER. But how do you how do you communicate that to people? How do you design your network so that it is obvious and easy to go to that outpatient clinic rather than to go straight to the ER? Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a you know some real questioning going on 
um, in some of these hospital and, and care networks about, um, you know, we have a responsibility to provide people with the best care. We have the facilities and the infrastructure to do that. But how can we then take that next step and make sure that people are aware of all of those opportunities uh, and get to where they need to go? It's a technical problem, but but again, I think there's a real felt responsibility coming from some of these organizations. Yeah, I, I would um, assume that would be more of a universal problem that would also apply to um, to New Zealand. So I was mm -hmm. wondering for our speakers that might be working in this um, in this field, what would be some advice that you would give them um, of you know trying to engage that community of activities that you've seen working from your experience? Yeah, I mean. I, you know, I'm speaking as a researcher. Mm -hmm. So part of the answer for me is always going to be research. Oh, research. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I, but I think, um, you know, uh, again, I, I think there's real value in doing a deeper dive than the kind of research that healthcare organizations often do, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of organizations or most organizations at this point use some kind of patient survey, right? So you come, Uh, maybe they'll try to ask you a couple of questions at the window when you're checking in about how you heard about them or why they came to that site. Um, and then after your visit, you'll get emailed a questionnaire that they sort of kindly ask you to fill out. And most of the time you sort of forget to do that unless you had a really good or really bad experience, right? So they have a lot of data of the really good experiences and the really bad experiences, uh, but but sort of not a, not a deeper sense of you know, how did you even get there today? So I, I think there's a big opportunity for understanding uh, sort of ethnographically what uh, people are sort of bringing with them into the healthcare uh, setting. And, and I think one of the challenges is thinking about which communities or which kinds of patients you want to focus on for that kind of a study, right? It's going to be really hard to get a full sample for this kind of research, just like it is to get a full sample of people responding to your survey. Um, but if there are particular communities, whether they're neighborhoods, whether they're cultural communities, whether they're communities of people with uh, certain conditions, right, conditions like diabetes that are, are very costly and very serious to, uh, uh, to individuals' health, um, I think there are, are definitely ways you can hone in on some of those communities and do some, again, sort of deep hanging out, uh, deep listening, uh, more in-depth interviews, tools like that that are really native to ethnography um, to really get to the core of, you know, what is what is motivating people? How are they making their decisions? And, and also, um, what are they doing that they might not even be conscious of? Hmm. Um, and I think this is one of the great strengths of anthropology and, uh, and ethnography as well, is being able to, on the one hand, be talking to people, be interviewing people, be hearing how they explain their own behavior. But then again, through that sort of deep hanging out, following people on their routines, uh, meeting them where they are, going to things like community centers, community meetings, seeing how people interact in communities with or because of, or maybe in spite of some medical issue that they might be facing, that you then start to see the, the sort of unconscious patterns. You start to see the social context. You start to see the connections between an individual's decision and their larger community and environment. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I think there's a lot to learn there. One other question that I had around this area with you, from my experience, I, I've seen a few companies trying to do ethnography themselves. And one of the challenges when you're, when you're trying to do that is that you get really stuck in your own perspective. And that triggers, it's very difficult to empathize with, let's say, somebody that is a user or a patient, though, no matter how you see it, if your view of your own position within that context is very, very strong. 
And then you're going out there um, looking at people and you'll only be looking at them from your own perspective. And it's very hard to trigger that self-reflexivity around your own role in that dynamic if it comes with a heavy burden as you would see it as for responsibility or product development or all that sort of things. Uh, one of the advantages of having a researcher from outside is that they are not kind of anchored in that, um, in that environment, uh, but on the same time, they would be there for a limited time and then leaving. So it's quite important that I think the company itself develops a practice of, of ethnographic work. But my question to you now following would be, how do you do that uh, in a way that allows you and or kind of you understand how important it is to also be self-reflexive of your role in the process? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really great question. You know, I, I think there might be some new models that... Uh, companies can be thinking about in terms of how they engage with outside consultants, right? You might be bringing someone on to do the research project for you or to supplement some of your internal research capacities. But I also think there's room for new models of a, a more sort of advisory hmm. nature or a, a research design uh, it kind of engagement rather than doing all of uh, the data analysis and the design. So I think there, there are different models that uh, companies can be thinking about to expand or, or supplement their internal teams. I also think that how who is on your team and what kind of training they bring is really important. I think that one of the benefits of a more scholarly style of anthropological or sociological training uh, again, uh, sort of distinct from design research or engineering training, um, is that you have a very broad toolkit of theories and perspectives and case studies to draw on uh, because you've done a lot of reading and research on these. And I think having that kind of back library um, helps you find different sorts of comparisons to the problem that you're seeing in front of you and I think can often really prompt you to ask either bigger questions or different questions, uh, or to be able to find alternative ways of thinking about what you're seeing a little bit more readily. So I think really uh, including people on a research team who do have that academic training, as unusual as that is in some sectors still, I think actually really brings significant benefits with it. And then another thing is to think about, um, you know, what kind of sort of independence or leadership can you craft? for an internal research team, right? Who's heading that team? Is it someone who's had experience across multiple sectors or who has this kind of deeper library of knowledge based on academic training? Um, what kinds of ongoing training can you think about for your team, whether it's ongoing training in methods or just ongoing training in terms of engaging with research communities, right? Um, there are a number of applied anthropology and other applied research conferences out there, which really do meld very nicely the academic and business perspectives. Uh, things like the EPIC conference, mm -hmm. the Society for Applied Anthropology, uh, and so on. And I think those are great opportunities to kind of shake people out of what they're used to uh, and, and, and get them thinking with new sectors, with new data, with new uh, comparators, with new theories as mm -hmm. well. One of the other challenges that, for example, I found when, when trying to work with anthropology in the business field is the length of time of the observation of the deep hanging out. And I would assume 
especially when you ha when your question it's it's very complex and it involves you know um, not very easy to see um, phenomena uh, that becomes even even harder. So I was wondering in this particular medical field, um, what kind of length of observations would you consider appropriate? Um, if you can even you know speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I I think it I think it kind of. It, depends on the engagement and on the questions to be answered and also on the scope of change or design alterations that you want to address. I think if it's, you know, if it's a question about how a community is going to utilize a new health facility, um, I think that should be a really in-depth project that includes engagement with numerous community groups and would probably be three to six months, if not longer. Uh, it might not be every day, um, but it would be a, a really extensive uh, project that really lets you get to know where you're going into sort of geographically, socially, uh, and, and relationally. So I think another place where anthropological ethnography is especially important is uh, in fields that are, uh, are just kind of coming into being. Um, so I think Uh, there's a lot of thinking to be done around the use of AI in medicine. I think there's a lot of thinking to be done around the use of virtual reality in medicine. I think there's a lot of thinking to be done around uh, some of the uh, genetic technologies and the ways that genetic data is being uh, collected and stored and exchanged. And so I think those are places where, again, there, there would be a real benefit to a longer engagement uh, with multiple communities, you know, on the three to six months or longer mm. order to really understand what what people bring in terms of knowledge, in terms of cultural background to using a new technology, um, what fears they bring to it as well. You know, maybe they're certainly in the case of AI, uh, it feels very uncanny. Right. And I say that not in the strict engineering sense of the uncanny valley where it's sort of not human enough to yet feel comfortable, yeah. but that it feels uncanny that there are sort of non-humans making decisions for humans and especially making decisions uh, for something as central to a human identity as health. So I think really understanding where that uncanniness comes from and uh, being able to uh, then sort of use that to craft a narrative that acknowledges that a technology or a sector is new, and yet also is able to talk about the benefits to individuals, um, again, is something that requires a much deeper perspective, much deeper research, uh, and research, you know, uh, either very deeply in a community or across a number of communities. Do you know of any kind of projects that are already ongoing in that space of new emerging technologies and social science that maybe our listeners might be um, wanting to re read or listen more to? Yeah, so one regional organization that's doing a lot of some really interesting work actually with uh, with a mainly in-house team uh, is Northwell Health. So this is one of those uh, healthcare networks that I mentioned earlier uh, in, in my area. Um, they have an internal team that's thinking really deeply about some of these questions um, and, and also thinking about how what technologies they can adopt as a system that will plug into some of these community needs or to some of these uh, sort of hopes and fears of their potential uh, customers and users. Um, so there was actually an, a recent podcast with one of the leaders of their design team that uh, was really interesting. I can send it along and you can include it in That would be great, um, because also if, if any other work that you would like us to kind of... Um like put down to the episode so that people that are interested in these topics can read and, and get more um, more information on that would that would be really awesome. 
Just one question that I would have would, would have to, because it was also mentioned by another speaker that we had on the podcast on the series, uh, was the importance of, you know, culture, I mean, is a living thing that moves with time and with habits and people that in inhabit it. And, and people at different types of culture and even different genealogies have a different interpretation of a technology, especially an emerging technology. And I was wondering if you've, if you've seen this uh, or if, if you've addressed this in any of the projects that you've worked on, because it's very hard to have, um, at one point in time, the same common definition of, of one thing. Um, and also, as it moves through time, it changes. And, you know, how, how would you deal with something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really interesting thing to think about, especially when I think about, again, these, these biotechnology companies that I've worked with, which have been in the allergy space. I don't know if any of our listeners follow the news in allergy and allergy immunotherapy, but it is a rapidly changing space with a, a number of startups, um, sort of small to mid-sized companies, uh, uh, really kind of duking it out on, in terms of clinical research and coming up with some really uh, potentially uh, life-changing and, and innovating, innovative solutions. Um, so things are moving really, really fast there. And, and so there's a lot of changes in, you know, what people want as some of those results are announced. Um, so for example, uh, there's a large community of people that are interested in a technology called oral immunotherapy. And this is a, a kind of technology uh, where you basically eat small, measured, and, and slowly increasing amounts of what you're allergic to. And over time, the theory is that your immune system uh, learns to tolerate uh, uh, the food that you're allergic to. So there's a large community of people interested in this technology. And one of the things that has happened is, is there's a company that is developing a version, uh, hopefully for FDA approval. But there is also a whole community of physicians offering a kind of home-brewed uh, version of this therapy in their offices using, for example, peanut butter or peanut powder off the shelf. So you have this kind of arms race with the one company trying to get FDA approval, but you also have this rapidly changing landscape of physicians mm -hmm. offering it uh, off-label, uh, kind of using their own formulas. And then you have a kind of patient community that is, on the one hand, sort of seeing the scientific results and becoming very hopeful, uh, but then on the other hand, uh, being discouraged from seeking out some of these freelance therapies by their uh, regular physicians because they're, they're sort of not approved. But then every so often they hear about someone who has a really good experience on, on one of these homegrown therapies. So it's a really confusing terrain to be in for the patients and also for, for companies thinking about, you know, well, there's all of this data coming out. And, and of course, medical data is takes a very long time to produce and, and to publish, but there's still a vast volume of it. And then how do you wade through not only the data, but also the rapidly changing uh, mm -hmm. conceptions of the your, your sort of market of is this safe? Is this not safe? Mm -hmm. uh, is this something I can get cheaply from the doctor down the road? Or is it something I should pay thousands of dollars a month for? Uh, so it's a really confusing terrain. And, and I think uh, even at the R&D phase, uh, this is an example, uh, but I think the same could be said uh, for many uh, new uh, kinds of therapies. You know, even at the R&D stage, kind of having a finger on the pulse of what patients, patient organizations, uh, what your potential market is, is understanding and thinking and expecting from you is really, really important for thinking about the future of your product. Thank you so much, Dania, for, um, for being with us today. And Thank you guys so much. 
It's a fascinating field, and unfortunately, we only have one hour to cover it, but hopefully we will be doing this again and, and digging deeper into this, this, um, this field of medical, medical technology and anthropology because there are so many, so many things to talk about and to think about and um, as, as our future kind of moves at a, at a rapid pace. So thank you again. Um, and yeah, have an awesome day. <laughs> thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Check our social media, our website and worldpodcast.com for other interesting content. Don't forget to come back next Tuesday for more interesting conversations.